VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us in the studio today, it is The Times' very own Molly Hudson. Coming up, we're going to look ahead to an exciting weekend of Premier League football, which includes a master versus apprentice battle as Frank Lampard takes his Chelsea side to Jose Mourinho's Tottenham and Everton take on Arsenal. But who exactly will be in the dugout for that one? More on that later. But first, to Doha. Liverpool will play Brazil's Flamengo in the Club World Cup final on Saturday, thanks to a late Roberta Firmino winner. That was against the Mexican side Monterey. Gregor, should we start with you first of all on this match? Because it was an unusual lineup. I think that's fair to say that uh, Jurgen Klopp chose. Yes, it was, it was born through necessity. Uh, Lovren and Matic were both ruled out through injury and mm. Virgil van Dijk went down with illness, I think, the day before. So um, Jordan Henderson was, was asked to fill in at centre-half, which is the first time he's ever done so in a, in a World Club Cup semi-final, which is quite a stage to do so. <laughs> um, and he did, he did, did well on the whole. Uh, just a few moments where you could, you could tell he was a midfielder and not a defender in terms mm. of slightly too eager to win the ball uh, particularly when the ball was in the air he was nudged off by a, a couple of times by Funes Mori and Liverpool I think looked a little bit disjointed at the back they also had James Milner at right back so it was it was a kind of makeshift back four and Alisson mm. had quite a lot of work to do but um that man Firmino came off the bench and, and nicked the winner at the death yeah they, they got the job done Molly what did you make of Liverpool's performance? Yeah, I think it kind of got a bit more nervy than maybe it needed to, didn't it? I think we was all sort of anticipating the the extra time, which is the very last thing Liverpool kind of wanted. Um, but in the end, they kind of rescued it with Firmino again off the bench. Um, but I think overall, I think they'll be pretty happy. But I think you have to look at it as clearly a weakness for Liverpool if we didn't already know that Van Dijk is such a key player. Mm. Take him out and yes, as Gregor says, there were other defenders missing as well, but it's not just his positioning, it's his presence and the way he commands everything from his teammates. You, you really see that missing when he doesn't play. Yeah, a huge miss for, for Liverpool then uh, against Monterey. And the Sunday Times' Jonathan Northcroft was at the game last night and joins us uh, as well. Um, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. What did you make of Liverpool's performance? Well, it was a struggle, um, but actually was full of admiration for how they came through what was a... A pretty difficult test. I think it was typical of the the, the difficulties um, European clubs, particularly British clubs, have faced going to this Club World Cup, where 
you know, they're arriving in the middle of a of a busy domestic season against teams who are really primed and 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 prepared for it and uh, are unfamiliar and have you know challenges that deserve respect. And I think you could see with Monterey that a a collection of of experienced physical um, you know Mexicans, Argentinians, Colombians. Um, Pretty tough to play against. Um, I was impressed with their, their, their pressing, their, their physicality. Um, they had some interesting players. I mean, you know, the guy Dorlan Pabon, the captain, had an incredible shot that reminded me of George Alberts that used to play for Rangers that, that, that Gregor might might remember. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, what a hammer he had. Um, and um, it was it was difficult for Liverpool, particularly with that makeshift team, makeshift defence that. Um, that we've been talking about, so it was one of those tests to to try and you know survive really, not to not to play well in, but just to survive it. And I thought in the end, you know, the the, the changes that Klopp made, of course, had a big impact. The class coming off the bench of Firmino and Alexander Arnold and Mane, um, but just Liverpool's mentality that we've seen time and again this season, that ability to prevail when they're not playing at their best, came to the fore once again. Should point out, Jonathan, that that's the call to prayer, is it? That we're hearing in the background. It is, well, I've laid it, laid it on atmospheric sounds. For you. <laughs> <laughs> There's more just outside my hotel. Well, at least oh. we know you're there. We can guarantee that. That's for sure. Um, Molly was obviously mentioning the, the big miss of, of Virgil Van Dyke. Do you know what's the latest on him? They're, they're, they're still monitoring him. I mean, he's, he, he's he, I guess it's a case of how quickly he recovers. He's he's been ill and. Um, couldn't train and you know let alone play early in the week um so it's one of those i think it's a it's a day-by-day situation but of course liverpool need him back and 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 um you know Klopp will be be crossing everything that that, that he can get him on the pitch because he's such a big big presence the winning goal came very late on in the game. It looked as though the match was heading towards extra time, but it was a moment of magic, Gregor, wasn't it, from Trent Alexander-Arnold that set up Roberto Firmino to score the winner. A Super Bowl, a Super Bowl that we've, I suppose, in some ways come to expect from Alexander-Arnold. Yeah, it's just that extra bit of class that we kind of we've come to recognise from him, and he's 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 almost elevating the what you can sort of expect from a right back I think uh, from a full back mm-hmm. in general with the, the level of productivity and the number of assists and he's, he's just his, his technique he's like, like we've we've had this discussion many a time about whether you could play midfield eventually and that might be the case but he's so productive as a right back and just it was a beautiful lovely kind of delicate little cross into the box um, bit of quality that Liverpool had kind of lacked I think uh, for most of the game, and and he came up with the with the with the key moment as he's done so many times this season. Yeah, he certainly has. Um, Jonathan, I just wondered how how was how well, how have Liverpool been received in Qatar? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they've they've got a lot of local fans. Um, Mohamed Salah is a huge icon in the Arab world. Very very popular um, in the stadium yesterday. He drew the biggest kind of reaction from. From the fans and um, Klopp himself, you know, he's got this kind of <clears throat> winning personality that I think translates across different countries, and 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 you know he seems to be uh, pretty popular here as well. But you know, it's a, this is a global tournament, and you arrive here and you realise that yeah, that you know, there's travelling Mexican fans, or travelling Brazilian fans, and of course there's you know local team as well, and 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 that you know it, it's not like everyone's sort of. Um, you know, universally wired by Liverpool either because there's, as I say, fans of other teams too. But the big the big draw is Salah. 
and I felt he he lived up to that pretty well. Um, maybe there were moments he was trying too hard in the game, but he had a, a pretty special impact with the first goal, played his part in the second. And, um, you know, as someone mentioned to me, even if he'd just sat on the bench, he'd have been man of the match. But when it was actually announced <laughs> he was man of the match, he had done something to earn it. Liverpool have, have left a long-lasting impression on the Monterey coach, that's Antonio Mohamed, because... Well, he's not very happy with the, the referee in this one. Joe Gomez was booked for a heavy challenge in the game and he, he risked further sanction when he handled the ball, albeit seemingly inadvertently. It prompted quite an eruption from the touchline from the Monterey coach. Um, also led to a confrontation with Jurgen Klopp, who sort of imitated his counterpart by brandishing uh, an imaginary card in, in Mohamed's direction. Both managers were booked as a result of it. But afterwards, the Monterey coach said this for me that was a red card especially the first foul and the second so I talked to the referee maybe a Liverpool shirt has more weight therefore the Liverpool player wasn't sent off does he have any reason to be upset or do you think this is simply sour grapes from him I, I did laugh at that because uh, I, I mean he, he had some pretty rugged defenders on the pitch who set out straight away to kind of smash Salah and, and, and get into Liverpool's players and they weren't treated you know um, or rather, they were treated pretty leniently by the referees. So, look, I, I can I can kind of see his gripe over the, the the specific instance that you know maybe in another context it would been two yellow cards or or whatever. But I, I did feel the handball was inadvertent, and he was a, he was a bit of a character, Mohammed. You, you sort of knew there would be a bit of theatre with him the moment he he kind of strode out with his kind of open neck shirt and his beard and his trainers on, and uh, and him and Klopp didn't didn't disappoint. But um, I don't. I don't think it. I thought it was quite well refereed last night, actually, to be honest. <laughs> OK, well, just 24 hours before seeing his senior side edge past Monterey, Jurgen Klopp could only watch on as his youth side represented the club in the League Cup quarterfinal. So he's watching this one on television out in Doha. Took on Aston Villa. They were soundly beaten 5-0. Questions have been raised uh, over whether the experience did the young side any good. And some have gone as far as to suggest that Klopp is even hung out the young players out to dry by leaving them at home and uh, not giving more experience to that side. Where do you stand on that, Molly? I kind of feel a bit for, for Klopp and Liverpool for any criticism that they're getting because at the end of the day, it's two games in 24 hours in different continents. I mean, it is never going to be particularly easy. But I think, firstly, I, I watched that game and actually the scoreline wasn't necessarily representative of the game. The, mm. the young players for Liverpool actually did really well and I think they will have learnt a lot. I certainly don't think it was a waste of of their time or something that they'll look back on with regret or kind of wish they didn't have that opportunity. I think actually the, the young side that came out in other circumstances, there would have probably been better young players that would have played. Like Rian Brewster was out injured, for example. So it wasn't even the, the first choice of the under-23s, for example. Um, and then also you, you look at last night and how difficult that was for Liverpool. What what would they have done? They would have. They, there's probably a very very small chance they would have ever won both of those games. They probably did as much as they could have done without winning. Of course, ideally you want to win both games, but I just don't think they could have done with the squad available and the injuries, both in the senior squad actually and in the youth squad as well. Mm. Jonathan, I know they've still got the final to come, so mm -hmm. maybe it's hard to to judge it. But so far, do you think it's been a worthwhile trip out to Doha? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is a chance to win a world title. Um, this doesn't come around very often, and Liverpool have never done it in 
in their proud history. So of course it's it it it, it has to be um, one of the priorities of of the season. I would argue. I think you know, it's obviously not the Premier League, it's not the Champions League, but um, it has to be taken seriously. I think. Um, they've got a big enough lead in the in the Premier League that, that if there's a if there's an after effect it doesn't doesn't matter too much and obviously the casualty is the is the Carabao Cup um, but maybe come January when um, when Liverpool aren't playing two legs and Manchester City are in the middle of that fixture list they won't be you know too regretful that they're they're, they're not here um, and you know there were some. I guess learning experiences for players like Harvey Elliott and and so on against against Villa. So I I, I think the way I think it was entirely right they prioritised this, sent out a strong team. Um, of course they have to win it really for the trip to be a success, mm. but it's a great chance for them. Yep, certainly is. On Saturday we will see if they can do that. Gregor, do you think, like some have been saying, that Jurgen Klopp has hung? some of his young players out to dry has he been disrespectful to the league cup no no i mean they, they were always going to prioritize this over the over the league cup i think they probably would have done the same over the fa cup mm. let's be honest about it and when what it was an unenviable situation so he had to play his young players and it's not been a waste of time for them you know it's not been it's not a punishing evening for them in the sense that they played well um and they'll also learn from the fact that mistakes get punished much more severely in sort of first team environment like that um you know even in the previous rounds that they've played they've played against perhaps sort of a mixture of of senior first team players and and youngsters like themselves so um to play against pretty much a you know a, a, well a very strong Aston Villa side it's, it would will definitely be a a good a good kind of learning experience for them and and uh, something that they'll they'll take forward in their careers I'm sure and Jonathan, I know you've written a piece in The Times where you've said, welcome to Qatar, heavy rain, luxury metros and questions of human rights. For you personally, what's the experience been like? Um, well, it's been pretty hectic, so probably haven't been able to, to get out as much as I'd like to have done. But mm. I had a tour of the Bean Sports Studios today, which was just awesome in terms of the the facilities they've got. Um, the metro is an incredible bit of engineering it's much changed from 2009 when I came here with England. Um, you can see the investment that's that's gone in. Um, of course, you know, as, as I mentioned in that piece, there are there are question marks about um, workers' rights in particular, and the, the the stadium building, um, and some of the kind of unexplained deaths that have taken place. And and I think it, it you know it, it involve it, it merits a lot of you know seriousness and investigation from from us as a media but you know there hasn't been much chance to to really you know immerse myself in that kind of thing since mm. i've been here you know the flip side is i've very much enjoyed coming to this part of the world it's it, i think the great thing about these tournaments and and the, the good thing about the 2022 world cup is you know bridging this part of the world the middle east the gulf and and, and the rest of the world and, and it, it might benefit both sides and it's you know I, I love travel anyway. It's, it, it is it is exotic being here. It's different, um, and uh, you know apart from having rain to moan about, um, it will be a pretty memorable trip. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, mm. I know a lot of people who have gone out there and uh, expecting it to be warm, as you would expect mm -hmm. in the Middle East. But no, there's been rain. It's been a lot colder <laughs> than expected. Well, it, it does nail the the kind of myth that. 
you know, it's going to be unbearable to play a World Cup here. It's going to be too hot. I mean, it would have been perhaps if if, if the World Cup had been in July or, or June. But yeah. I think the one thing we've all learned on this trip is the World Cup as a tournament is going to work fantastically well. You know, logistically, it's going to be bang on. The stadiums are going to be bang on. And the weather's going to be absolutely, you know, almost perfect for football, I would say. So... From that side of things, it leaves me with a lot of confidence that the 2022 is going to get to work really well. And what do you think fans travelling then will expect? Well, they, I'd like to have gone out to the fan park. So yeah. they've, they've got a big fan park out of town, which is quite a distance away. Um, and um, I guess they're going to put it there because when all the World Cup stadiums are built, you know, some of them are outside of Doha. So I think perhaps the idea is to have fan park in our central locations. So I don't know what that's been like. I do know the prices of of a beer have been kept quite low there, which 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 obviously will please travellers. I think I, I I think you know fans will find that there are things that are different. You know, you can't get alcohol everywhere. You you need your passport everywhere. Security can be quite high around hotels and things. But they'll find a lot that's familiar, more familiar than they expected. They'll find a lot to enjoy. They'll meet friendly people. Um, and uh, they'll, you know, they'll they'll be sitting in great stadiums watching, watching football and be able to get around. So it's, it's going to be a different World Cup, you know, very different. Let's say to Russia, where you're travelling a huge country and there are lots of sort of different challenges. It's going to be almost like having everything based in, in I don't know Birmingham or something like that. A whole World Cup based around somewhere that size, but. It's going to be different. It'll be interesting, and and um, I think I think fans will have a different experience, but probably end up enjoying it. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. Voiceover on settings, so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from ten to eleven. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Now, in Saturday's early kickoff, it is a battle of the caretakers, certainly at the time of this recording, as Duncan Ferguson's rejuvenated Everton host Arsenal, who are on a torrid run of one win in five under their interim boss, Freddie Lundberg. Before we get the latest on their managerial situations, Gregor and Molly, do we give Arsenal any hope in this one, given how badly they've done in recent weeks? Yeah, of course, they've got some chance. It's just... We need to see a more kind of coherent, organised defence. That's the, that's Arsenal's biggest issue at the moment. Um, Everton have been sort of rejuvenated. It's been quite remarkable to see the effect Duncan Ferguson's had. It'd be interesting to see what his what his role's going to be going forward as well, mm. because he's really you know he's always been a figure in, on the periphery or in the background guy. Everyone knows a lot about from his time as a player and his character. But when he's sort of speaking to the cameras, he's it's very different. Um, still see the passion and the touchline and whatnot, but he's he's obviously he's he's made some some tweaks to the formation and stuff that have that have worked. Um, so I would at the moment, as things stand, if it's we've got the same management teams in the dugout and nothing else changes in the in the meantime, I would still say Everton are the favourites because they just look more organised, better 
like they know their jobs mm. and I would certainly say they're favourites and being at home as well because you know it's probably going to be Ferguson's last last game in the dugout in charge and uh, I'm sure the Everton fans and the players would like to get a win for him. Well, Goodison has certainly been rocking in, in the last few games since Duncan Ferguson has taken over. That will certainly be intimidating for Arsenal to go there, Molly. Yeah, I think Arsenal have just been such a strange sort of mismatch in recent weeks. I think I watched them when they played West Ham in the Premier League and got the win, but were really, really bad in the first half, um, but still got the win. And then I did the Europa League game when they played Standard Liège, and again, they in that one they drew, but they, they seem to be able to produce the very best of what they can in like a 10-minute spell. And then for the rest of it, it's just chaos. And I think Gregor's right in the fact that Everton are much more organised and that makes such a big difference because that is what Arsenal are lacking. They're lacking almost like a leader or or just something that kind of brings them together and they're lacking so much confidence, which now actually Everton have in abundance because of in the last two games they've gone, done so well and they, they think they can get the points now whereas Arsenal are almost on the opposite of that they're, they're in such a run and there's been so much speculation over Arteta and Lundberg and Emery and it's just sort of this big whole mess that just needs to sort out and I don't think it'll be sorted out by the weekend which has to give Everton the edge Chaos is the word that yeah. Molly said it's every game Arsenal have been involved in for the last six weeks or something just descends into this wild basketball game mm. uh, there's no sense of shape or organisation or anything and someone like Calvert-Lewin who's worked his socks off I've been really impressed with him the last few weeks worked his socks out throws himself into challenges and he's just he's, he will look at Arsenal's back four and think this is yeah, this I is going to be a good day here. for me yeah it doesn't also help that the way that Freddie Lundberg speaks kind of makes you question so much of what is going on at Arsenal we've talked about managers' demeanours of, of late. Pep Guardiola at times has looked very frustrated. He hasn't looked his happy self. But Lundberg, he, well, he talks about constantly about, we need a new boss, we need a new boss. It's as though he's panicking constantly because he's not comfortable in the role that he's in. I felt really sorry for him after that Europa League game because we was all asking him, will he stay permanently? What will happen? And actually, he was just sort of stuck in the middle of this, in charge of pushing this team forward and actually he was in limbo himself because you know whether or not he really wanted the job probably after this period he's thinking no thank you Um, but there was just no help I think he said in that press conference Emery had such a big team to work with and that failed and then you've just taken away the whole team and it's basically just him so he can't really it wasn't a good dress rehearsal for him to get the job because it's just him that isn't you know, that isn't how it would actually be. So he's sort of the, the middleman until they find, you know, potentially Arteta to, to, to take over. It was never going to go well for him. It was, it was like the impossible job. Everything that he was supposed to bring, you know, the, the going back to your Arsenal roots and that passion has been so hard to do because he hasn't really had any support because he knew that he'd only be there for until the powers that be decided that he was going to leave. But mm. what Duncan Ferguson has done sort of illuminates what, uh, Lundberg hasn't. Mm. The, they mm. both both had the same tasks. I wouldn't say Ferguson's probably had much in the way of conversations with with the hierarchy of, of Everton about you know he he just knows it's game by game, and he's not taking anything for, gran- anything for granted. He knows he, you know even when he was interviewed after on the pitch after the 
draw against Manchester United, he said, no, this club needs to have one of the best managers in the world. So he knows, you know, it's, he'll do it for as long as he needs to. Whereas Lundberg has not got any reaction, really, from the players. In fact, it's looked worse. So it just that's, that's, that makes the urgency that, that much more for Arsenal. And I would be surprised if, if it's not done by the weekend. Whether, whether or not Arteta is in the dugout or not, you know, that would be interesting to see. Mm. Because I'm sure he'll have... Well, we, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see what happens. But it will be interesting to see that. Are you surprised, Gregor, then, about the choices that Everton and Arsenal appear to be making? I'm kind of conflicted about both. Ancelotti is a huge figure in football. And it seems, in one hand, it seems a coup to have for him to have even sort of considered joining Everton. That's no disrespect to Everton, but this is a very different job to any he's had for almost twenty years. Um, and this, and so that's kind of part of the reason I'm slightly conflicted about it is that this is a very different challenge for mm. him. We spoke about this before. He's he's his kind of remit more often than not has been to take a an elite Champions League level team and make them perform a little bit better. So he must have had guarantees about resources he's going to have and the ability to to sign sign players and build a team that's going to be sort of able to compete for Champions League spots, which if I'm an Everton fan, I'm, I'm excited about. So, you know, he's a huge figure and I, it's, it's, a, it's another another huge name in the dugout in the Premier League. There's so many of them now. Yeah. Um, and from Arsenal's point of view with Arteta, Again, I think I said this already. I've surprised the kind of clamour for him, and I think it's his, his association with Pep Guardiola for the last couple of years is is the only reason, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they do the homework, and I know he, um, he's he's a highly respected coach, but they know n- nothing about him as a manager. So it's a huge risk for Arsenal. I, you know, when was the last time a club of Arsenal size and stature gave someone a job mm. when it's their first job? I can't really recall anything like that before in the past. So it's a risk and it's a risk for him too because he's taken on a team that are at rock bottom and a huge fracture between the club and the supporters and not much metal in the changing room either. Do you agree, Molly, that it is a huge gamble to go for Mikel Arteta? Yeah, and I think Greg was right in the fact that it's a big gamble for Arteta because obviously he was quite close to getting the job when Emery ended up getting it. Mm. And obviously they went with Emery and Arteta's thriving at Manchester City. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, uh, if you're associated with Pep Guardiola, that's that's never a bad thing for your career. Um, and it does feel like a gamble because, you know, these, these problems that are Arsenal, it hasn't just been a case of Lundberg coming in and telling them to kind of fight for the shirt or whatever. That That hasn't made a difference. So there's, you know, a lot of... A lot of Arsenal fans have talked about the fact that Arteta is coming back to the club that he knows so well and he understands the DNA of the club, so does Lundberg, and it hasn't really worked. So you're relying a lot on the managerial qualities of Arteta, which are untested, so of course it's a big gamble. But at the same time, I think you look at this season and I don't think anybody's expecting Arsenal to get back into the top four. It's just too competitive up there, particularly with... Tottenham's recruitment of Mourinho so quickly seems to have pushed them back up the table so I think in a way he has this the back end of this season now to kind of settle in 
potentially think about where are the areas he wants to improve in the squad, who he wants to keep, really get to know the players because, you know, he's been working for Manchester City, he just hasn't been that close to the team, regardless of his affinity for the club. Um, so in that respect, he's not quite been thrown right into that deep end because he has this almost period where it kind of can't get any worse. So he has that. We'll see about that. <laughs> yeah. That's a bit cold. Yeah. <laughs> well, Arsenal fans will be hoping it can't get any worse. Yeah. Um, so I think he probably has got that little bit of leniency. Uh, you'd like to think if they are appointing someone like Arteta, they're appointing someone for the long term. So it may have to get bad before it gets better, for example. But what can we read anything into this? And I mentioned that about the press conference being um, pushed back by 24 hours. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's brother, Willie, he's quite influential on social media and is quite in uh, with uh, legends of the club and it, it does get involved at Arsenal a fair bit. He responded to an Instagram post and mentioned the lack of experience that Arteta comes with into management. Can, is that possibly a window into life in the dressing room, Gregor? Uh, God knows. I mean, I, I wouldn't imagine so. I don't... So would you not? Though? I, See, I instantly, when I saw it, I thought, surely this is a conversation you've had with your brother who's probably said, well, it's just the same as Lundberg. But that's how maybe, I Maybe, maybe, but, but what actually doesn't matter. It's up to Arteta when he goes through the door to convince them that he's somebody that yeah. they want to get behind and follow and work hard for. So... You know what? What someone's kind of sort of preconceptions are about the guy who's coming in. There's always going to be some, unless it's unless it's one of the elite few managers in the world. There's always going to be. There would have been doubts about Emery, mm-hmm. I'm sure. So there will be doubts about Arteta. People will be keen to see how good he is on the coaching, you know, on the training field and, and as a coach. And they'll, they'll be keen to see how he carries himself and delivers sort of team talks and and. And meetings and analysis and all, everything that everything that encompasses the role. So it's up to Arteta to impress them. That's really the, the only thing you've got to say about that. Well, from the managerial situation in the Premier League to one of the biggest games of the weekend. It is second versus third on Saturday evening at the Etihad as Brendan Rodgers is seemingly unstoppable Leicester head to the champions, Manchester City. Having reached a club record eight consecutive Premier League wins last week with victory over Aston Villa, the Foxes had to make do with a point at Norwich last time out. And despite having picked up 25 of the last 27 points on offer to them, they sit 10 points adrift of the league leaders. And while they still have the division's best defensive record, there are sterner tests to come, namely Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. Who on earth, then, is going to be the favourites for this one, Gregor? I still think City. Yeah. Um, Look, what Leicester have done has been remarkable this season. And to be four points ahead or whatever they are from, uh, from Man City, I think that's a remarkable feet already um, I just think Manchester City still have we saw it against Arsenal they still have the ability to cut through teams at their best at will with, you know Kevin De Bruyne is someone who there's very few players like in the world um, and he can win a game for them Ryan Sterling's the same uh, Jesus is the same I think at his best um, so I think I think Manchester City are the favourites but it will be intriguing because Leicester, you know, Leicester are a team who are going to try and dominate possession as well. Um, and we saw Chelsea were the first team to sort of have a greater share of possession 
than Manchester City not so long ago. So if Manchester City aren't kind of tight and, and organised and compact, especially in midfield, then Leicester will, will dominate the ball and they'll, they'll, they have players that can hurt them, namely James Madison. He, he's, he's the ideal he's the ideal person to pick those little holes in midfield that Manchester City have had a problem with around around Rodri this season and uh, and really streamy Vardy so, so some intriguing tactical battles I think mm, it's certainly one to look forward to Molly if they lose Leicester is that it for the title in terms of their their own aspirations of winning it I think so I think we sat here a couple of pods ago and Gregor was saying that like it had already gone that it was Liverpool's title and I kind of argued that no it, like it's still it's still alive um I think with the points dropped against Norwich, I think it probably is already Liverpool's title now. Um, and I think, I mean, this is, you're loving this if you're Liverpool, aren't you? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> um, Manchester City versus Leicester. It's a win-win for them, um, in a way. And I think, actually, I think Leicester could well go on a win because what has been so impressive about them this season is they can play in more than one way. Yes, they can play so well in possession but also they're so good out of possession and can hurt you in the blink of an eye on the counter-attack so that does give them that advantage that it doesn't really matter whether they have the ball or not because they can they can play in both ways but even with a win they're still so far behind having lost those points to the Norwich and yes we talk about these big games and it being crucial that you don't drop points in those actually to win the title it's the little games that you have to keep accumulating those points and it, it was a big sense of two points dropped against Norwich. With that said, though, if they do win at the Etihad, confidence will go through the roof when they then have to face Liverpool on Boxing Day. <laughs> Indeed, it's some festive period for for Leicester, and uh, look, they're 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 in great shape. I mean, Norwich was the first time, as you said, they've they've dropped any points in in some time, and and Brendan Rodgers recognised that he had to make a change, and and you know he has changed things a little bit. Well, Molly's right; he's played two up front, which has not been. His usual sort of uh, tactical. It's not not been his usual formation, and I think we'll see Jamie Vardy playing up front on his own and and uh, testing out Nicholas Otamendi in particular um, and stretching that Manchester City backline. Well, on Sunday it is the battle of the master versus apprentice as Frank Lampard takes his Chelsea side to Jose Mourinho's Tottenham. They come into this game in very different form with four league wins in five for Mourinho whilst his former player Lampard's Chelsea have hit a bit of a blip and are four defeats from five in the league. Tottenham will go level on points with Chelsea with a win. So how crucial is this fixture in the race for the top four, Molly? It feels really important because... As you mentioned, Chelsea have, have gone through this little blip and I think um, I was at Stamford Bridge on Saturday and they played Bournemouth and it was all very flat. The fans were flat. Lampard was completely fair and said, do you know what, I would be flat if I was watching that. Um, and he, was, he sort of talked about this now being the reality. There was all this hype over these young players and... He was sat there listening to us all rave about them and said, actually, this isn't going to be the case all of the time. There's going to be dips. And they've you almost forget how good they've been at the start of the season that they lost Eden Hazard. And that is now what they're missing. They're mm. missing that creative spark. Pulisic has, has done really well since since he's came in. and But you, you can't be expected to rely on him every single week. And I think that's where they're lacking but what I think is interesting is where where you'd usually 
go up against a Mourinho team and you would expect them to sit back and defend, actually that's the opposite of how it's worked for Tottenham because defensively they've looked quite poor, particularly full-backs. I mean, Pulisic will be delighted if he's, if he's got to play, play against those full-backs because they've just looked so poor. And everything that's good about Tottenham is going forward. Harry Kane, Hyunwing Son, Deli Alley's back into form. So actually, it might be a really exciting attacking game. But again, they're probably famous last words. <laughs> it will turn into more flat defensive uh, football. But I think it'll actually be pretty tight because the, the negatives and positives of each of the sides kind of cancel each other out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is obviously a fierce rivalry. We all remember the Battle of the Bridge a few seasons ago. And it seems unlikely, Gregor, when Mourinho took over. But do you think he could actually pip Chelsea to one of the top four spots? Well, there's every chance. I mean, it, it'd be amazing that if they leapt above Chelsea already. You know, how, how soon as how long has Mourinho been at the club? And um, to be in those top that top four already would be an amazing feat so far. And it's kind of it is it's going to be close for that last spot. It seems definitely. You look at Leicester. I mean, they're thirteen points clear of fifth. So there, you've got to say they really are in amongst the three. There's a, a sort of elite three. The two has become a three now, and that last place for for the Champions League is a battle between Chelsea, Tottenham, and Man United. If they can kind of keep putting decent little runs together, because they're, they've been so patchy. Um, and as Molly said, if they can. If they can over start finding a way to beat the the kind of lesser teams as we call them, um, so it's going to be it's going to be tricky. It's hard to it's very hard to pick a team at the moment because Tottenham are the one in the ascendancy. A few weeks ago, we would have said that Chelsea Chelsea looked pretty safe for fourth. So um, Chelsea need to arrest this little slump pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. I think they probably do need to sign. I said I said last week they need to sign a defender. Definitely, that's probably top of their priority list. I think. Now, this is our last podcast oh, of 2019, only of 2019. So we thought, why not round things off by um, selecting our player of the year as well as our manager of the year. So, Molly, should we start with you? Who's your manager of the year? I think, for me, it's very difficult to look past Jurgen Klopp. Mm-hmm. Because, for me, when you think of a manager and a football team... At the moment, particularly, we've seen how quickly things can change and how managers come and go. But actually, Klopp has become the identity of Liverpool. It's hard to imagine this Liverpool side or any Liverpool side that's going to be successful without him. Because, yes, they've got incredible players and quite a few of them could have been our player of the year because they've been that good. But also, he's he's been this constant... He's connected so well with the club, the fans, the players. I mean, everything is just clicked and he's like the perfect fit for Liverpool. And I think particularly when they lost that Champions League final and then to go and win, that was such a big step. And you always think that he has the belief. He This week he's connected with the young players, despite being on the other side of the world. He just has that sort of charisma that, that makes everyone love him. And clearly it's not just working for us and working for the fans, it's working for the players as well. Okay. You've got a strong case there for Jurgen <laughs> Klopp. Gregor, who's your manager of the year? I'm going for Chris Wilder. Surprise, surprise. Oh, eh? so loving <laughs> with this one. Just because he used to work with him, you know, he was your boss. No, go on. I, I think he deserves it. I think the mere feat of actually getting promotion in the first place, we have to remember as part of this year. And he... 
they had a budget that was among the, the bottom six in the championship. So to get promotion was a kind of miracle in itself with a team that he'd built primarily from players in League One. And the thing is, this season, very little has changed. It's just that, you know, people who people who are followed, followed Chef United and followed the championship for, for quite some time knew all about Chris Wilder. He's sort of marriage between old, old school virtues and the tactical innovations that everybody's sort of bewitched by this season. Mm. Um, and nothing's changed. They, they attack games the same way as they, they always have. Front foot football, that's what he calls it. And still got the kind of connection between the fans at, at, at Bramall Lane and they're the best football I've seen in decades. Um, I, do, I, I think Chris Wilder would deserve it as well. I think to win a, to win a promotion and to be, what are they, seventh in the Premier League with a an outside eye cast towards the Europa League places maybe even. Mm. Um, you know, they're alongside Wolves now. Wolves, Wolves were lauded last season for for their for their season um, the first season back in the Premier League and it's exactly the same for Sheffield United and it's all down to Chris Wilder two very good candidates but obviously doesn't beat mine who is and I'm dipping into the EFL I'm going into League One and I'm going to pick Gareth Ainsworth who is obviously the manager at Wickham if you take yourselves back to the start of the season they were a certainty for relegation the season before they finished something like 17th just three points clear of the relegation zone but right now they find themselves unbeaten in 12 seven points clear at the top of league one and they are on course to be promoted to the championship for the first time in their history and bear all of this in mind that gareth ainsworth has not had a lot of money to spend at wickham so he's doing a really good job on limited resources and the fact that, as I mentioned, they're unbeaten since September the 14th, and that was a 2-0 loss at Gillingham. You could watch, getting into the festive spirit here, you could watch Love Actually in full exactly <laughs> four times in that time since Wickham have conceded a league goal. Sounds like a great day. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, someone like me who likes Love Actually, I don't mind that. I could watch that four times. But it's been tremendous. It's 579 minutes since they actually last conceded a goal and I think Gareth Ainsworth deserves a lot of praise absolutely great show thank you, thank you Gregor uh, your player of the season Molly let's start with you again again it's it's been really difficult this year because there have been so many impressive performances but for me N'Golo Kante is still ridiculously underrated mm-hmm. and obviously he was part of such success of Leicester went to Chelsea and unsurprisingly he was just as good but then Jorginho came in and, and you wondered if that was almost the end of, of that Kante position that we'd, we'd known him for for breaking up the play um, and just working so hard and being the engine of that Chelsea team. But actually this season under Lampard, he's really thriving in in actually not only breaking up the play but getting it forward. Um, what, watching Chelsea against Bournemouth, actually it was him that sparked all of the attacks. You look at the the attacking players and people like Tammy Abraham that obviously catch the eye, but it's in transition that Kante has been so good and has actually improved on the way he played at Leicester. At Leicester, he was known for for being that sort of shield in front of the defence, but now he he can do that just as well as he always did. But now he's added so much more to his game and has become even more important, arguably, to Chelsea because he can do both of those things, um, which I think makes him all the more remarkable when you consider his sort of rise through through English football, really. Mm, yeah, he's not out about 2019, No, to be fair. Can you top that then, Gregor? I think I can. 
Oh. Jamie Vardy. Okay, go on. He's the leading scorer mm-hmm. with 16 goals. Yeah, yeah. He scored 12 from January onwards last season. Brendan Rodgers played a huge part in his sort of rejuvenation and that's continued this year. So 28 goals already in the calendar year. Um, I don't think there's many people who beat that. And it's just really interesting to know how he's, he's sort of... His style of play has just changed that little bit and that he, he's not... Uh, he's not kind of pressing as much. He's he's conserving energy for for the moments where he's released. And there's no doubt as well that having someone like Madison and Telemans, um, really kind of creative players with good vision. Some of the passes we've seen Madison play in behind the back and behind the back line, perfectly weighted balls for his runs on the last, on the kind of shoulder, the last man of the defence. Um, it's like a marriage made in heaven. So. Uh, I, I can see him going on to to score. I don't know. He could he could potentially hit thirty goals this season for Leicester, um, and then he'd undoubtedly be in the running for for Player of the Season at the age of thirty three. He's getting better. Okay, again another good shout, Molly. Jamie Vardy, particularly this season, is doing is doing a great job for Leicester. Um, I still think. I mean, I'm going to go with the least heralded of the front three, I think, for Liverpool, and that is Sadio Mane. 13 goals this season. He was joint top scorer last season in the Premier League with 22 goals, alongside Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Mohamed Salah. But all the focus is always about Salah, it tends to be, with Liverpool. Mane, in particular this season, has scored 13 goals in all competitions. He's a menace on the pitch with that speed and with his work rate. He is fantastic this season, I feel. And so much credit has to go to him for the position that Liverpool currently find themselves in. I agree. I think if there was a player of the year competition for the half season so far, mm. I would pick Manny. I just think that Vardy's little uh, start after January. Up a little. No, okay. You're doing the whole <laughs> year, I, that, I get it. I think that would nick it for Vardy. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, we'll, see what, we'll see at the end of the season. We will, we will. So that is our mini review of uh, the last 12 months of fantastic football and that is it for now many thanks to our guests today Jonathan Northcroft and of course Molly Hudson remember you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it is just a pound a week for an eight week trial search the Times subscription for more information and the game podcast now takes its short festive break but we will be back on Thursday the 2nd of January so do make sure you join us then and please do enjoy your festive holiday VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.